Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. I hope that you've had a great week, and I hope your week gets even better after you hear this interview with me and my longtime friend, Daniel Simmons, who I worked with in Tokyo and who, in my opinion, is one of the best storytellers I've ever come across. I'm always telling him that he should write a book, but he is yet to do so, so this is going to be the closest thing that we get to Daniel's book for now. We talk about a lot of things in this podcast, especially places that are, I think, quite unique for travelers to go. And so you'll really want to listen to all the different places that Daniel talks about going to and the interesting insights that he has into those places. I also want to mention that I believe when I interviewed Daniel, the volume on the mic was not turned up quite enough. And we only used one mic uh, together in the same room. So some of you listening to this may need to crank that volume up to hear us enough, and I do apologize for that. I'm still in the learning process of audio editing, and hopefully I'm going to get better as I go along. We're also providing his Instagram on our website, theschooloftravels.com, so if you want to see Daniel's photos, please be sure to check that out. All right, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode six of the School of Travels podcast. And today I am here with my longtime friend and my travel, I would say one of my travel idols. I don't know if I've ever ever told you that, Daniel Simmons, but that's who you are to be. Thank you, Becky Gillespie. I I could say exactly the same thing about you, and and particularly in the last year. Some of your travels have really inspired uh, my most recent journey. So thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited for the listeners to hear some of your travel stories because as like me, I know you come from the U.S., um, but you've traveled wider and further than anybody I know. So, hmm. yeah. So first of all, can you actually tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm a 42-year-old uh, American. I'm from sunny suburban seaside, Southern California, originally. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, went to to school in Southern California, and then went to graduate school on the East Coast uh, in New York. And then in 2004, I moved to Japan, and I would say that really it was from, from that point, after moving to Japan, that I really started uh, doing a, a lot of traveling. Uh, Japan has been a great springboard for seeing a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, so here in Japan, in Tokyo now, I work as an English teacher, and that gives me lots of opportunities to talk with people from various backgrounds. Um, and also the greatest thing about my job is that the people in charge of my company are very, very supportive of having uh, us teachers go out and explore the world and learn new things and uh, indulge our curiosity. So that's been really, really a a treasure. It's been a precious experience being able to take that time. How long have you been with that company and been able to travel? So my current company, I've been with them uh, around 10 years. It's been been about a decade. Wow. Long time. So you've been with a company that's been very, like, travel passionate and open for their employees to travel for 10 years. Yeah, and uh, the three American guys who founded this particular company, um, when they first came to Japan, they saw it themselves as an opportunity to see a lot of, not just Japan itself, but also a lot of Asia. Uh, They had a a deep-rooted interest in seeing a lot of the rest of the world. So they passed on that value and that opportunity to all of the employees as well. Uh, So, yeah, if time is money... And in addition to the salary that I get, uh, that time has been uh, immeasurably valuable. Wow. That's, uh, I can't wait to hear more about that. But I do want to go way, way back sure. um, to where you think this travel, this passion for travel started. Because I've, I've tried to think back in my own life, and I'd love to ask this question to people. What do you think made you such a traveler? Uh, you know, I've thought about this question myself sometimes because this is the kind of question that people ask when they see the list of places that I've been. Um, and I don't really have a, a pat answer. I would say that when I grew up, um, I, I have nothing bad to say about my hometown, but when I was a kid, I found it kind of boring. I mean, it's a, a suburb of Los Angeles along the California coast. And now I appreciate it a lot more than I did, I think, when I was a kid. Um, but I was very much a homebody. 
and I didn't get the opportunity to get out and explore much, even in my town. I was kind of stuck at home for various reasons, mostly taking care of my brother. Uh, so I did a lot of reading, and reading was my escape from that sort of mm, very closeted uh, life experience, you know, existence. So I did a tremendous amount of reading, and among the books that I, I read, I read a lot of fantasy, but I also read a lot of, of travel literature. So I was very interested in what people were, were seeing and experiencing outside uh, of their homes, you know, and, and how they were stretching themselves and having uh, a variety of new experiences. So I think that was maybe the, the first seed. Books were my first escape, and then when I finally had the, you know, the, the income and, and the time to be able to do my own actual escapes rather than just literary escapes, I started doing some exploring. Um, but I would say, yeah, for, for a long time I was not interested so much in you know, sightseeing or visiting really famous places. But when I was eight years old, uh, my father got a job on the East Coast, sort of a job and sort of a study experience in New Jersey. Um, as I said, I was living in California, uh, but my family decided that rather than have my father be absent from our lives for a year, we would accompany him. Um, and rather than take the airplane out to the East Coast, we decided to make a family road trip of it. So we took two weeks in the car uh, going across the states from California to New Jersey, hitting up any number of places along the way. But if you asked me, you know, where were your favorite places that you stopped along the way, I don't know that the places made a huge impression on me. Mostly I was in the back seat with my nose in a book. And I would look up on occasion to particularly if there was an animal outside the window. My mother would say, oh, look, there's prairie dogs. And I'd look up and I'm like, oh, yeah, great. Or a buffalo or something random like that. But Grand Canyon, Mount Rushmore, these places, I mean, they, they didn't really have much of an impact on me at the time. Um, but it was a fun trip. It was something very much out of my usual kind of daily experience. Uh, and I would say it was not until really my university days um, I was a junior in university when I took my first trip outside the country, and that was with my mother to the UK and to Greece. And that was great because I could finally experience, you know, directly all of these places that I had just seen or read about in textbooks. Uh, so whether it's the Parthenon in Athens or you know the Big Ben clock tower in London, uh, Stratford upon Avon, uh, where Shakespeare uh, used to hang out, uh, that's his hometown. Uh, and that really, uh, I would say, kick-started a, a more genuine passion for, for travel. Later that same summer, I spent a couple of months in Costa Rica as part of a um, biology research project. I was so a bio you had that set up before the UK and Greece trip? Uh, yes, okay. yes, yes. So that was, that was a study trip. So I was staying with a host family of campesinos in the Costa Rican countryside. Um, the nearest town was about 45 minutes to an hour away by bus. Uh, electricity was very infrequent. I mean, all, all kinds of things happened during that summer. Uh, it was very difficult <laughs> in many ways. Did you speak Spanish? How was your Spanish before you went down there? Uh, I had taken several years of Spanish, and I felt that I was pretty good, but I realized immediately after arriving that all of my Spanish was textbook Spanish. And um, in fact, uh, People laughed at me and they said that I sounded like a dictionary when I spoke to them, which was a little humbling. Um, but by the end of that, that time in Costa Rica, I felt I was pretty fluent um, and, and I loved it. Uh, I loved the experience overall. I came home with some interesting fungal parasites, uh, you know, various Often insect something that bites. Might throw people off of traveling more in the future. Yes. And I mean, any number of adventures in Costa Rica during that summer, but it's. I would say from that summer, that, that really, really uh, sort of ignited the fire that, that is still very much burning in me today, that curiosity to see the rest of the world. Wow. Well, I have a couple questions about that, those trips. So sure. did, your, did you approach your mother or did your mother approach you to take that first trip to the UK and Greece? And why the UK and Greece of all the places you could have gone? Uh, that's a good question. I, I honestly don't remember who initiated the idea for that trip. I think at a certain point my parents realized that you know, it would be good for me to, to get out of the States, uh, just to get a bit of a different perspective. Um, and my father is very much a homebody, so he was not so keen on jumping in an airplane and going anywhere. Uh, I also have an older brother who is mentally and physically handicapped, so he needed somebody to stay at home and, and watch over him. 
So my mom was the obvious candidate to go with me. And I don't know how we decided. I think Europe was a, you know, it felt like a safe starting point. I think a lot of people listening to this would probably empathize with that sentiment. Um, we didn't have to worry about the language issue in the UK, obviously. Uh, and it was a chance to, to, to see a, yeah, a variety of, of places that I would say are hmm, touchstones uh, in quote-unquote Western civilization. So, uh, you know, visiting all of the, the old buildings in London, but, um, of course, Stonehenge on the Salisbury Plain, uh, the Roman ruins in Bath. So it, England offers, I think, a, a wide variety of, of interesting experiences, particularly for the first-time travelers. Very, very easy. Right. So you definitely recommend that as a first place to go abroad from the U.S. or from place English-speaking, if you're not an English-speaker? Yeah, I mean, I would say, if particularly if you're somebody who is nervous about traveling, um, you know, you don't have to immediately go to Lesotho or to, you know, Colombia or whatever. I mean, you can... <laughs> it's like learning to swim, right? You start on the shallow end, and then you slowly work your way towards the deep end as you become more comfortable. Um, I would say that for, for most people, that's probably a, a wise way to go. I feel like going from the UK and Greece with your mom to suddenly living with a host family in Costa Rica, that's quite a leap, too. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was a leap. <laughs> um, and it's interesting you had that planned, because I guess you kind of maybe, with, along with your parents, you decided this is going to be the summer that I get out of the U.S., that I try these things. Uh, maybe. I, I mean, again, I don't know that it was... I don't know that there was a master plan behind that. The Costa Rica trip was part of my studies. I was, I was a biochemistry major at the time, and my professor, uh, my advisor, uh, had owned a, a farm in Zona Sur in Costa Rica, very close to the Panamanian border. Yeah. Um, and every summer she would take a, a select group of undergraduates down there uh, to work on research projects. So I thought, eh, why waste this opportunity? Um, uh, I was also a huge lover of wild animals, and I fancied myself a sort of Indiana Jones in the making. Uh, I even had the hat. I, I had an Indiana Jones-style Stetson fedora that I made sure to take with me to Costa Rica, bought a machete when I was there, and very much lived out that sort of boyhood fantasy of hacking my way through jungles and crossing rivers and uh, you know, avoiding alligators, this kind of thing. So, so movies may have also inspired Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm no Indiana Jones, but it was fun to kind of play act that role. Right. Uh, yeah, it, especially that summer. It was very, very eye-opening. And it was so different from the UK um, and Greece. Uh, so rather than you know, touring around in these cherry red Evan Evans tour buses, um, I mean, it was struggling up uh, a muddy... Uh, hillside, um, reaching out to grab a tree for support and, and feeling, shoulder. with my machete, feeling, you know, two-inch spine sink into my palm, uh, shrieking in pain, falling back, rolling down the muddy slope, um, that uh, my fellow undergrads and I went on a hike. Uh, it was supposed to be a three-day hike. We only managed to do the first leg of the three legs of it, uh, but it involved 25 river crossings. 25, up in like waist-deep muddy water, and these areas were famous for not just uh, cocodrilos, or alligators, um, but there, was, there were several river crossings near the sea in which there were signs warning you to expect not just the crocodiles, but also hammerhead sharks, because the water was brackish and sometimes they would mix. So imagine you're a, a college undergrad and you're crossing the river, waist-deep water, with the possibility that there is a crocodile and or a hammerhead shark or both, uh, you know, swimming around you. So, so that was very, very adventurous. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering why you didn't decide to just stay in the U.S. after this trip. <laughs> I mean, you went from, like, training wheels in the U.K. to this, to hammerheads, and then that was the summer. But it was, it was so exciting, and, and I adopt a policy that it kind of doesn't really matter. Mm, let me... Let me couch this in slightly different terms. I was about to say it doesn't matter what bad happens to you so long as it makes a good story afterwards. Now, I should say, however, I've been very, very lucky uh, in my travels. I've never been robbed. I've never been attacked. Uh, I've never been the victim of a natural disaster. I've never had to face you know, a truly awful uh, crisis or experience. I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect. 
But in general, I think that hardships that you encounter when travel, they're hard at the time, but they make the best stories afterwards. And as long as you keep that perspective in mind, I think that helps you endure what you're going through in the moment. Um, I mean, just to say one other thing about that, that Costa Rican hike, uh, this was through Corcovado National Rainforest. And our first campsite, um, I was with two other undergrads, and we'd spent all day hiking you know, through the mud uh, to get to this place. It took us hours and hours and hours. We finally get there exhausted. Um, and we see a, a sloth uh, up in the tree immediately as we come into the campsite. And we just spent like an hour watching this sloth make its slow, slow way <laughs> across this branch. But it was this very magical experience. Right? We're in the middle of, of nowhere, in the middle of this rainforest. It was beautiful, and we pitched our tent underneath this, this big tree um, and fell promptly asleep because we were so tired. The next day we wake up, the tent is covered in bird, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, so I'll say bird droppings, bird excrement, bird fecal matter, just <laughs> cascades of it on the, the top of the tent. And when we first saw it, we were really angry. We thought, oh God, like now we have to clean this up, like how could this have happened? And then we looked up, and there was a toucan nest in the, the tree above us. And suddenly, this, this avalanche of excrement that was on our tent became something, like, really magical. I mean, it wasn't, you know, pigeon droppings. Um, it wasn't, a, you know, seagull crap uh, that I was used to in my hometown. It was, it was toucan <laughs> excrement. And there was something that made that somehow totally bearable. So, um, I don't know why I told that story, but then... then well, that, it sounds like you have... You know, even in that first trip, you, you're making the most or the best of these situations. You're seeing the, the magical side of it and not, you know, the painful and heat, all the crazy, like, fungal infections that may come out of it. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the big lessons of travel, right, is that uh, it gives you perspective. And you have to learn to see the, the magical side of it, and you have to learn to have a sense of humor about what happens to you. You're not in your usual milieu, so you kind of have to roll with it. And it teaches you to laugh at yourself, to laugh at your circumstances, and also I think it teaches you a tremendous amount of patience. That's probably the greatest gift that travel has given me. Yeah, because you definitely can take all of these things you learn while traveling back to your normal milieu, as you might say. Sure. So uh, so on that note, yeah. I'd like to ask, this, is gonna be a, this could be a hard question for you. It might be easy. So what travel experience do you think has taught you the most about yourself? Mm, about myself. Or what did you learn the most from in going through that travel experience? You know, I, I don't think that I can single out you know, a particular, let's say, a epiphany moment where I... You know, some travel experience held a mirror up to myself and I saw into the, the deepest, darkest recesses of my soul and anything that nothing springs to mind. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I, if there were, I would tell you. I, I would share it. But the climax of your novel. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've traveled to different places for different reasons and every single trip that I've taken, I think, has taught me something about myself. Um... Some of my travels have been more personal than others. Uh, I hadn't really planned to talk about this, but um, for example, uh, about 10 years ago, I went through a divorce, and it was not a fun experience uh, for, for you listeners. I don't recommend going through a divorce if you can avoid it. Um, but one of the things that travel has, has often done for me is given me a, a chance to... Um, well, in a way, yeah, of course, on the one hand, escape my, my usual environment, my usual circumstances, but it also affords me a time and an opportunity to really uh, do a lot of thinking um, and to really focus and concentrate without my usual daily distractions on the things that are, are very important to me. And so travel has helped me process a lot of that. Um, and after going through my divorce, I had, a, I had my wedding ring, um, which I had not yet disposed of, and... I didn't want to just throw it away. I didn't feel comfortable selling it to a pawn shop. It, it just felt weird um, that, that that idea didn't sit well with me. But I thought, on the other hand, I don't really want to carry this thing around with me. It, it's sort of, I don't know, I, I'm not a superstitious person, but I think these kinds of objects have a certain totemic power. And 
I didn't want it sort of haunting me uh, for the rest of my life. So I thought I, I, I need to get rid of this ring. Um, and one of the books that I read when I was eight years old, uh, going across country on that two-week family road trip, uh, was the, well, the, the book series The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, which has had a number of influences on me in my life. But of course, that story, for the two people who are listening to this who have not read the books or at least watched the Peter Jackson films based on them, um, it's about a ring. And it's about a, <laughs> yes, it's about a ring that uh, uh, it, it brings great power, but it also creates a lot of troubles for the, the characters in the story. And what do they do with the ring to get rid of it? Becky, you've, you've read these books or you've seen the movies. Don't they throw the ring into a volcano? They throw the ring into a volcano. So I thought, what better way to say, uh, to, to kind of close the chapter on this, this particular part of my life than to find a volcano and throw my ring into it. How do you choose the volcano? It's, it's a good question. Volcano um, shopping. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's a lot of volcanoes. Uh, I was living in Japan, which is part of the Pacific Ring of Fire. And in Japan, there are several volcanoes. But in general, the Japanese authorities don't want you getting too close to the craters. Yeah, there's lots of public safety issues related to that, and I didn't want to get arrested trying to make my way into the crater of a volcano. To I don't know how I would explain that to the Japanese police. So, um, uh, Indonesia is the most seismically active country in the world, although Japan does give it some competition. Uh, so I started looking for volcanoes in Indonesia, and there's a volcano called, um, oh my gosh, now I'm, oh, Gunung Rinjani, uh, which is on the island of Lombok just had a major earthquake recently. It's close uh, to Bali. Yes, it's just east of Bali. Um, and it looked perfect. So you have to do a multi-day hike. You can get uh, to the crater. There's actually two sets of craters, and I thought that this is it. So that trip uh, was a very, yeah, it was a very introspective trip for me. Um, I, I went, I had this kind of mission, and I, and I f forced myself to sort of concentrate on this this experience that I've had in my life and, and to try to understand what lessons I, I should take away from it. So, so that was a very, I mean, it, it may not sound so meditative. Again, it's lots of climbing uphill in, in rain and mud. And, and, it can be, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, volcanoes and, and wild animals and, and so on. But uh, in the end, um, it was exactly what I needed. And, and I felt that I, I left the rim of that crater feeling much more at peace. Myself and with, yeah. So there was a sense of release when you threw that ring in the volcano. Absolutely. After. Absolutely. And I mean, this sounds very, this sounds almost like it's out of some cheesy, um, I don't know what kind of movie it would be. Would it be a comedy or a drama? Or, uh, anyway. I think a drama for sure. A drama. So I mean, you had the, this, this smoke kind of boiling up out of the, the lake that's in the crater, and I had the ring in my hand, and I made this little speech to, to myself and, and actually to my wife. Um, and then this eagle, <laughs> this eagle soared overhead. Really? This, yes, this, this one solitary eagle soared overhead, and it was, again, I'm not a superstitious person, but it just seemed like this absolutely perfect moment, and I said my goodbyes, and I threw the ring in. Wow. So it was, uh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, travel you can really use as a tool to, you know, help you process a variety of things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that for people who are going through, whether it's a midlife crisis or a relationship crisis or, uh, or something at work or, or whatever, if you can find the opportunity to, to change your environment um, and to give yourself the chance to really kind of dwell on, meditate on, focus on, concentrate on um, you know, what, what you're feeling about it and, and how, how to move on to that, that next step. I think travel is, is one if not the cure, it is, is one form of medicine. Thank you for that story. I do want to ask you, it sounds like, did you go on that trip by yourself? I did. Um, do you, have you traveled often alone, or what do you think about traveling alone? Uh, I typically travel alone. It's very rare for me to travel with other people. Um, what was the first time that you traveled alone? Mm, the first time that I traveled alone, I honestly don't remember. I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I, I feel like in general I've traveled. My first trips, like I said, uh, 
to the UK and, and to Greece with my mother. Um, and then that, that experience in Costa Rica was with a few other uh, undergraduates. Uh, when I graduated from university, I went on a trip with a university friend through Spain and France and Italy. But more or less after that, I think I, I really started being interested in, in traveling by myself. Um, partly because mm, I, I feel like most of my best trips, not all, but most of my best trips have been by myself because I am completely naked in a way. I, I have no support system there. Um, there's no friend or family member upon whom I can rely uh, or depend on if, if there's uh, some emergency. Um, but there's also, it, it forces me to interact with locals uh, or, or people in that particular area where I'm traveling, um, which mostly locals, but sometimes fellow travelers. And I, I feel like if I travel with other people, um, I may get lazy and just spend the entire time chatting with them mm -hmm. uh, and comparing notes about what, what I'm doing. Maybe um, too normal, like, or too similar to where you had just come from. Yeah, I feel like I'd be carrying around this sort of bubble of my usual life. And, and my major goal in traveling is to get out of that, uh, get out of that usual framework and, and explore something new and force myself to embrace the novelty of where I am and what I'm doing. That's interesting because so many people would say, that, that sounds very scary to me. I just want to relax in another environment. Why do you think it is that you view travel in that way? I mean, it, it depends on what, what you're looking for, right? Like, people travel for any number of reasons. I think that I, I don't travel to relax. Um, and if you want to travel to relax, all power to you. You, you know, go to, uh, go to a beautiful beach in Thailand and spend five or six days uh, sunning yourself, you know, on the sand and enjoying those turquoise waters. I, I will not criticize that in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I, I don't travel for that reason. I, I travel to... I mean, this sounds really generic and, and cheesy, but I, I really do travel to broaden my perspective um, of myself and of, of the world. And you can't do that, I think, by, by keeping to your usual habits and being with your usual companions. I, I think that for me, and, and just for me, um, or speaking, sorry, just for me, uh, travel is an opportunity to, well, yeah, to embrace novelty, as I said before. And that means getting away from the people that you know. So what, what are some places you've been that you felt really did broaden your perspective? Mm, um, and this is where I'm wondering if your stories are going to come out just to kind of highlight how many places and some interesting places you have been. Um, so, so one thing that I found as I, as I grow older and wiser and more experienced in life <laughs> um, is that you, you can't always really trust uh, the, the media. Um, and I, I'm not going to launch into a Trump-style fake news harangue uh, about the way that the media portrays the world. But, but I, I do think that one thing the media often gets wrong uh, or doesn't do enough of a, a good job at. Is that grammatically correct? I'm an English teacher, so I'm very nervous <laughs> about using grammatically this correct sentences. Yeah, I know. Right now, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, just pretend that what I said was 100% grammatically okay. Um, I think that the, the media often offers a very simplified and simplistic view of the world. And just to give you one example, uh, in 2011, in March 2011, there was a huge earthquake uh, and tsunami and nuclear disaster here in Japan. Um, I took that opportunity to do some traveling because all of the clients of my company had temporarily suspended their lessons. And one of the places that I went to during that period was uh, Yemen. And... For those of you who are familiar with recent Middle Eastern history, uh, spring of 2011 was the Arab Spring. So there were protests sweeping the Arab world at that time in North Africa and the Middle East, uh, and Yemen was certainly part of that. Uh, and the day that I arrived in Yemen uh, was called a day of departure. It was estimated that some uh, half a million protesters were swarming into the capital, Sana'a, uh, to demand that the president at that time, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, stepped down. Um, so lots of people in the streets chanting. And Yemen has either the most or the second most 
the, oh, sorry, the, the, the highest or the second highest level of gun ownership per capita in the world. Uh, America gives Yemen some competition on that front, by the way. Um, and so you, you arrive in, in a city which is in the middle of a revolution, uh, half a million people uh, in the streets, estimated. Most of them are armed. Um, Yemen has had a fairly contentious relationship with the United States, um, although politically in many cases it's been an ally. There is a lot of anti-American sentiment, at least as described by, by the media, uh, and the media and various governments in, in so-called Western countries had, had warned very, very strongly against visiting this region. And to, to make a, a long story shorter, to get to the punchline, I found that Yemen was um, probably the friendliest country that I've ever visited in all my travels. Uh, the, really? Yes. Uh, so the, the people that I met there, once I got through immigration, which was a bit of an ordeal, incredibly friendly, incredibly welcoming. And, you know, you look at uh, the front page of the New York Times or you open a news magazine and if you look for, if, if you do an image search on Google for Yemen, um, I'd say there's a probably a, a high probability that uh, it will conjure up a photo of some, you know, bearded, uh, jihadist uh, looking, you know, angry young man uh, with a, an AK-47, uh, you know, toted above his head, uh, his mouth open, you know, looking very, very angry. And I feel like if you, if the photographer had just moved his or her camera like half a millimeter to the right, you would see some old lady uh, in the background just doing her usual daily grocery shopping. So, I mean, the, the media has an interest in focusing in on these sort of sensational stories and highlighting um, the conflicts that are happening in these places, but that's not the whole picture. And that trip and, and a number of, of similar trips, I think, really opened my eyes or, or scraped the scales from my eyes. Um, Weren't you scared to be there, though, when you got there and you're going through? I mean, I think most people would be. Um, I, would, I don't know if I'd leave my hotel. <laughs> I, I won't lie. Um, I mean, definitely my pulse was racing every time I stepped out onto the street. And you, um, kept, but yeah, you kept going out of the street. Well, that's, that's part of the excitement of travel, right? Is I mean, if you're nervous about traveling, if you're scared about traveling, that's in a way probably a good thing. That, that's a natural human response. Yes. You, you put a human being into a situation that is completely new and unfamiliar for them, um, it, it's scary. And you've got this media image in your head, or you know, a lot of people would. Sure. Um, and, and you should feel that way because it keeps you, it keeps you alert. It, it keeps you on your toes. You do need to be street smart when visiting these places. It's not like walking down the, the Champs-Élysées in Paris. I mean, although, Purse hanging open. Exactly. Um, although Paris is not the safest place to visit uh, either. I'm, I'm sorry to laugh about that, but uh, th there's no place in the world, I think, that is, is genuinely 100% secure. So you do have to keep your wits about you. But uh, channel that nervousness, channel that anxiety, you know, make it uh, work for you, make it productive. Did you um, travel with someone else? Did you have people no. kind of guiding you no. in Yemen and Sana'a? No. Okay. No, I was traveling around. Because you were going around. to yeah. one of my number one bucket list destinations, which I didn't make it to before. Now we cannot go there, from what I've read. Mm. Um, maybe I could, through another means, into Socotra. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and for those of you listening, Socotra is a... It's often described as the Galapagos of the Middle East. It's this desert island, literally a desert island, uh, in the middle of, um, well, off the coast of Yemen. Uh, it's almost impossible to get there, even when there's not political instability. There are several months when you can't get there due to the monsoons or rough waves, etc. But it's an absolutely enchanting place. There's also no, now no functioning airport that will get you there. Right? Yeah, that, uh, that situation seems to change month by month. So... The, the airport in Sanaa. N nobody listening to this podcast, at least in, what was the month? August 2018. You should not be inspired to start making your plans to travel to Yemen. You've okay. got me ready to search the Google <laughs> month by month. <laughs> um, very, very unstable at the moment. And, and the airport in Sanaa, at least last I checked, the international airport is, um, well, it's, it's half in ruins. Uh, Socotra is occasionally um, reachable via Dubai. Uh, or, or other places in the Middle East, so it's worth checking from time to time. Um, but yeah, that, that place is amazing. Probably the single most unique landscape that I've ever seen in, in all of my trips. Um, now, 
on Socotra, this island, I did have a guide. It, it's impossible to wander around by yourself, in my opinion. I, I don't see any it's practical not, it's way It's not to a do tiny it. island, is it? I mean, you can it's not. road transport to the mm. ground. I don't imagine there's that many paved roads. Uh, right. There, there, there is some... Yeah, there is some very, very meager infrastructure there, and I'm sure things have... Well, I'm not sure that things have improved since 2011, but uh, it would be hard for it to, to be any less um, bad than it was at that time. So yeah, you need a, a good driver, you need a four-wheel drive vehicle, um, and you also need to be prepared to do a lot of hiking. Um, and you were there by yourself. You were traveling alone to Yemen and Socotra. Yes, I was traveling by myself. Um, and once I got to Socotra, I hired a, a team. Um, well, a team of two. There was uh, my driver. His name was Muad. Uh, he was from Aden originally. I didn't speak any English. Um, portly little guy with some kind of bug eyes. Uh, addicted to cat. A cat is that... The plant that people in, I believe, only Yemen, Somalia, and Djibouti uh, chew uh, in order to be, well, it's kind of stimulant. Um, and it's like a coca leaf equivalent? Something like that. I mean, uh, Muad and my other guide, who is this young fisherman named Wagdi, uh, yeah, th those two and I had a cat chewing session on my last evening in Yemen. We found this cave next to the sea. Uh, rolled out uh, some mats, some little carpets, um, and smoked some shisha pipe, and chewed some cots, and watched the sun go down. You did, you did as well? Yes. You, try, you tried the cot? Okay. I did. How, how was the cot? I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Could you put some in your bag and take it? No, 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 no. So cat generally, as far as I know, it's illegal in most other countries. So Yemen and Somalia, yeah, their cot export market is, is not doing so well because it's it's banned in most other countries, as far as I understand it. Um, I, I did not feel any particular high, but we sat there for six hours, chewing cot, uh, watching goats sort of pick their way through the trash that was in the cave, and the, you know, the sun slowly sinking over the horizon. Um, but just imagine taking a, a large you know, tree branch and stuffing it in your mouth and chewing on it for six hours. So afterwards, the, the interior of my mouth was completely raw, um, and it hurts, and like my entire jaw ached, I would say, for about 10 days afterwards. So not, not an experience I, <laughs> I would strongly recommend, but, but I will say that um, it brought me closer to that driver uh, than I had been during you know, the previous five or six days that, that I was with him. Uh, he was so delighted that I was willing to sort of take a, st a step across that, that sort of cultural barrier between us and, and do, you know, indulge in his passion. So even though he and I spoke very little um, in terms of, of, of language, you know, we didn't have a common tongue that we could speak. Uh, that experience I felt was a really good bonding experience with Muat. Yeah, I'd say any, so many local traditions, it's, it's true. If you get right into what they do in their daily routine or if it's, you know, they can't help but feel closer to you and you them. And, and I think you would agree with this, Becky, because I've you know watched your own travels over the years, and um, one of the quickest ways to uh, to communicate or to bond with uh, people in any particular area is to share a meal with them, right? I mean, so having dinner or lunch or sharing a drink with somebody opens up all kinds of doors that just regular conversation maybe couldn't. That was one reason I was so fond of Anthony Bourdain. Mm. And Rest had, in peace. Yeah, he had some really wonderful things to say about getting right into the culture that way. Well, on the media note, I know you also went to Venezuela not that long ago. Yes. How was Venezuela compared to the image that you see in the media? And I, I know things have changed even more drastically since you were there. When did you go there? Uh, so Venezuela, I went there when? It was um, not last year, the year before. So yeah, two years ago in the autumn, I spent a couple of weeks in Venezuela. And... It was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think, and this is not true just of Venezuela, but I think that oftentimes entire countries are characterized by what's happening in their capital cities. And I won't lie to you, do not go to Caracas, uh, the, the capital of Venezuela. That place is, is a mess. Uh, it's, it's chaos. Um, street crime is rampant. Um, How did you even get through there? I know you had to go through there to go to the... 
in more natural regions? Well, you don't, actually. So um, the, the airport is conveniently located outside of town. Okay. Uh, and so for the most part, I, I bypass Caracas. But even on the flight, uh, I mean, I, I caught multiple flights from Tokyo to get to Caracas. Um, and my final flight, that was from, I guess it was from Houston, Texas, uh, to, to Caracas, if I remember correctly. And the woman sitting next to me uh, was Venezuelan. Uh, her hometown was Caracas, and she asked me if I was planning on going there. And I said, well, no, I'm going to limit my time. And she said, very good idea. I absolutely do not recommend spending any time whatsoever in Caracas. But get out into the countryside, and you will see a very different vision of this country. Um, and, and that dovetails with, with my experience there. So even if a country has been labeled, again, by the media or, let's say, by the British Foreign Office or the U.S. State Department as being uh, off-limits uh, to U.S. travelers or wherever it is that you're from, um, take a moment and, and see whether that really justifiably applies to the entire country. Uh, oftentimes, you can duck into places and see areas that are perfectly safe, um, that the chances of anything terrible happening to you are, are very, very close to nil but those places are painted or tarred with the same brush as the more dangerous places are. And, and this has happened to me time and time again, uh, even in just the last five years. You know, I've been warned against going to, for example, northern Ethiopia because of riots that were happening there. I saw zero riots. Uh, or you know, places in, in Lebanon, in the Bekaa Valley, which, okay, granted, is close to the Syrian border, and there is a chance, or there was a chance, that perhaps you know, the, the Syrian civil war uh, conflict could spill over the border at, at any time. But again, one of the loveliest, uh, friendliest places that I've, that I've ever been. Um, I- Uganda, uh, North Korea. Um, you went to North Korea? I went to North Korea. That was four years ago. People have this terrifying image of North Korea, and they should be terrified of North Korea. I mean, it, it is a very, very deeply disturbing and creepy place. But it is also, in my opinion, one of the safest places to travel. Uh, so long as you follow the rules and you don't, you know, steal propaganda posters uh, featuring the, the leaders of the country, um, the, the North Korean government has no interest in, in letting anything bad happen to you. Uh, they're, they're very, very, very careful about managing the visitors that, that come to their country. All I hear, though, are people getting kidnapped there when they go. Yeah, and, and there are obviously times that are politically less good uh, to go and just... This week, I believe, a Japanese man who was being held um, in detention there was, was released and allowed to come back to Japan. It's not clear why he was detained. Um, and of course, the U.S. citizen, um, what's his name, uh, Otto, Otto Warmbier, um, who was imprisoned for, well, for committing a crime, for not following the rules that the North Korean government had set out. Uh, he was detained and he came back to the U.S. in very bad medical shape and eventually passed away. So, uh, of course, these stories get a lot of uh, media attention, and they should. I mean, you, you do not want to casually go to North Korea, and I would not say, I, I would not recommend it as being anywhere near the top of your to-visit list unless you you're already a seasoned traveler. On a tour, right? You have to, yes. Yeah, okay. So if you follow the rules on the tour, things should go all right? Yes, and uh, the, the company that I traveled with, they were very, very clear. They sent me a list of guidelines and rules in advance, and they said, if you do not feel that you can abide by these rules, do not come on this trip. Uh, very, very clear. Um, e- even North Korean citizens cannot travel around their own country without being on an official government-sponsored tour. So, How do you feel about going to countries where the government is painted with such a terrible... Or, and, is documented as doing terrible things and so how do you feel about going because I've talked with my mother about this especially with North Korea right. and she said that she would not want her tourist dollars going to North Korea by going there um, I mean I think that's a very valid point uh, to make and I would just say that on the one hand I, I agree with that sentiment I sympathize with that sentiment um, on the other hand and just to use North Korea as an example of this um, Yes, your tourist dollars are going towards basically financing a, a totalitarian regime. Um, on the other hand, if anything in North Korea is going to change, it's going to have to start at the, I don't know, the, the level of, of the citizenry there. And they don't have YouTube. They don't have access to the internet. 
to learn? Well, some parts of society do. And, and one of the more fascinating things about that particular trip was talking with our guides, who are North Koreans, um, and they have access to the internet. Um, and we were allowed to bring our iPads, our iPhones, and they would watch episodes of American TV sitcoms with they, us on the bus. Do they have Facebook? Uh, unlike mainland China, they have access to... Uh, I, I don't know, um, you know what their social media uh, footprint is like, um, but certainly the children of the elite families or people who are put in positions to interact with foreigners, uh, they're very, very surprisingly cosmopolitan. Um, now, they have a certain vested interest in keeping the regime going because they benefit from it. Um, at the same time, uh, I felt like I was able to have a few, you know, not many, but a few, what I felt were unguarded conversations with my guides. Um, and that was very eye-opening for me. You realize that these people are not just robots, they're not just automaton-like uh, organs uh, for the regime. Um, they, they do have their own individual hopes, fears, dreams, and occasionally, especially when we were drinking, uh, they would let that kind of thing slip. But more importantly, even than the official government tour guides uh, who come from this elite background, um, were the citizens that we would interact with during our trips. So that particular trip in North Korea, and, and it was with a group, because basically you have to go with a group. Um, we spent 10 days wandering around any number of areas in the country. And even though nobody in my group spoke, well, actually there was one Finnish guy who did, uh, sorry, one Swedish man who spoke uh, Korean, South Korean, and so he was able to communicate to a limited extent with uh, some of the just you know, ordinary citizens, uh, fishermen, uh, pool hall, uh, you know, pool players. Um, now they're not going to be suddenly launching into criticisms of, of uh, Kim Jong Un and sharing you know the, uh, all of their their worries and frustrations with us, but those sorts of simple interactions between you know, non North Korean tourists and the North Korean uh, citizens, I, I felt that has to have a sort of cumulative impact over time. One of the, a perfect example of this is that there was an American man um, and his, his wife, uh, who's from the Philippines, uh, they brought their eight-month-year-old baby son with them oh. on this trip. And on day number one, when we all you know, got into the, to the air cordial plane that was going to take us from Beijing to Pyongyang, I looked at this family and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. First of all, who brings their eight-month-year-old son to Korea? That's right, to, to North Korea. And second, this kid is going to be crying like the entire time. We're going to be stuck on a bus with this kid for hours. It's going to be miserable. That kid was the best-behaved child I've, I've ever witnessed in, <laughs> in my trips. Wow. Totally chill. With you for the whole 10 days. With us, yeah, for the entire time. Um, and, and the reason why I bring him up is not just the what I thought was a very interesting choice to bring uh, somebody that young along on this, this trip to this, this particular place. But how can I explain this? Every single time we got off the bus, uh, this couple would unload the baby stroller. <laughs> and this baby stroller was this, you know, this perfect piece of 21st century baby transportation engineering. I mean, it had multiple moving parts. It would fold, unfold. I mean, the, the wheels, it was like an all-terrain uh, baby stroller. I mean, th this thing could, could move. And seeing the expressions, the facial expressions of the North Koreans as they saw this stroller. So it wasn't even the baby, it was the stroller. I mean, the, the baby was also fascinating to them because it was like a mixed-race baby. And I mean, I don't think they'd ever seen a, a tourist, like a, you know, a tourist from outside that was that young. Um, but the baby in combination with the stroller and seeing this piece of technology, I, I didn't see a single stroller when I was in North Korea, you know, among the North Koreans. Uh, it's like they would just throw a baby on their back or they'd be carrying it or you wouldn't see the baby at all. So this, you know, th this thing that you could buy on Amazon.com or go to, um, you know, Toys R Us doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, um, this, this stroller, I'm just seeing, just witnessing that stroller, I think was a huge eye-opening experience for the North Koreans that we encountered. And, and that's my single most impressive memory of that trip. I mean, there were any number of things that happened during that trip, but that, you know, seeing their expressions change and, and their eyes widen when they saw this, this contraption as it was unfolded out of the bus. I mean, that, that I think makes going to North Korea worthwhile. What an interesting experience to see those reactions over the course of that many days. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and sorry, just to go back and make one other point. I think, yes, when you go to, to visit a country that is uh, run or, or managed by a regime that you don't agree with or you know, under a political system that seems very repressive um, and you know, pe people are suffering any number of human rights abuses there. Um, I, I'm not always sure that simply ignoring such countries or, or failing to engage with or interact with such countries is the long-term way to go. I, I don't think that's necessarily a solution. Um, and you may feel like you're punishing the regime, or at least not rewarding the regime by not visiting there. Um, but I, I think you have to separate the political system from a, a place's citizens. So even if you don't agree with the government or the governmental policies that are in place, I think you can still do a, a lot of good by going to visit these places, by showing a certain amount of solidarity with the people that you meet. Um, I, I felt that way, for example, when I went to Myanmar, um, you know, before its kind of democratic revolution. Uh, revolution is perhaps too strong a, a, a word to use in this case. But certainly Myanmar has been under democratic transition, and for a long time, um, even Aung San Suu Kyi said, don't visit Myanmar, you know, don't reward the military junta with your tourist dollars. But I, I can't remember where, but I, I read an interview with her afterwards, and she, she had kind of a rethink on that. And she said, well, maybe that, you know, that wasn't necessarily good advice. So if Aung San Suu Kyi can change her mind about this, and I know she now has <laughs> a lot of criticism levels at her uh, for what's going on with the, the Rohingya, but... For a long time, she was one of my role models, and, and I feel like if she can ever rethink on this, then a little bit of traveling in such places is not going to, uh, to be a negative thing. I still want to believe that people are inherently good, and these borders have just been created by man, and we're just born where we're born, and we can't judge the whole country Absolutely. by its political regime. So I just, uh, I mean, not a disclaimer, but a, a travel advisory of my own. I mean, if you're considering going to any of these places that are, let's say, whether they're quote-unquote axis of evil countries or they just seem very off the beaten path, uh, unstable, uh, of course, don't, don't go there casually. I mean, take your time, do a lot of research. Um, I mean, I know you would, but for, for listeners of this, um, anybody who's considering a trip to some place that is politically unstable, definitely do your homework in advance. I'll look at the map, see what places seem reasonable to visit and which places are, are actually definitely off limits. Also the visas, you have to think about the visas for of a course. place like that. And I know being in Tokyo, uh, it's easier to go to the embassies directly here and start the process of getting what could be a difficult visa than a lot of other places where people are living. So. Yeah, Tokyo's great in that respect. It's like a, an embassy mecca. I do think that, that that was one reason I based here for so long as well. Really? Being a fellow lover of travel, yeah, just, you know, comparing it to where I was from in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the process to do any kind of... I always had to mail my passport off for weeks and weeks, and I think if it were a place like Yemen or uh, North Korea, there would be a lot of questions coming directly from Washington, whereas in Tokyo, you've got the right documents, generally you can, you know, with enough time, get what you need. Sure. I mean, you can find almost any embassy in, in Tokyo. Uh, not a North Korean embassy, but uh, almost everywhere else. Really quick question. Um, how many countries have you been to now, Daniel? Ish. Ish. Yeah. I mean, uh, recently I've, I I sat down uh, because I, I often get this question, and I tried to make a, a list, a comprehensive list. But very quickly I realized that the number becomes kind of a controversial figure, depending on whether you count certain places as a country or not. But for example, um, I've been to Taiwan. Now, I consider that, uh, let, let me fly my political <laughs> you know, flag here, I consider that a, a separate independent country. Um, and I think most of, let's say, the United Nations community would agree with me. Um, but anybody from mainland China listening to this, um, hmm, some of those people might not agree. Uh, or a place like uh, Transnistra, uh, which is a sort of frozen conflict zone um, in eastern Moldova. Now, Moldovans would take exception if I said Transnistria is a, a separate independent country. Um, it's not represented in the UN, but it has its own you know, currency. Uh, you have to go through an immigration and customs uh, checkpoint uh, to enter. Uh, all of the, the signage changes from 
you know, Roman lettering to Cyrillic lettering as soon as you go across the border. So is that a separate country? Is it not a separate country? So uh, I'll play it safe and just say that the number of countries I visited is in the mid to high 90s. Okay. Well, the reason I asked first yes. uh, is I, I would imagine after all this travel, uh, you have come up with at least three go-to packing items that you always make sure that you pack. You, you had warned me in advance about this particular question. And yes. so actually la last night I, I had a look um, you know, at some of the trips that I'd done before and I was racking my brain to think of what, what three items or even one item uh, that I always bring on a trip. And I have no answer for you. Really? Yeah, that there is nothing that I consistently bring on a trip. I, I did mention books. I know you always bring books. Yes. And I should say like printed material, not I don't think you you still do not bring a Kindle, do you? Right, no, I'm not an e reader whatsoever. I still love to feel that sensual friction of the, the paper pages turning underneath my fingertips. Yeah, I'm all about the, the paper versions of books. Um I mean, I, I don't know if my, <laughs> my answers are kind of boring, but uh, definitely books. Um, I, I think a lot of people say that, or I have read or, or heard a lot of people saying that you shouldn't read too much about a country before you visit there because you don't want to go in having this sort of predetermined filter or, or set of glasses that you're wearing, sort of psychological glasses that you're wearing. Um, you want to just expose yourself to all of that newness and exoticness uh, full on without having some sort of preconceived notions. Um, I totally disagree with that. Uh, I, I think that a, a smart traveler is somebody who, well, first of all, travels to a particular place for a reason. Um, and for me, that reason is to usually to acquaint myself better with the history, with the culture uh, of that place. And that means that I force myself in advance to do a lot of advanced reading um, about the history of, of that country or that city or wherever it is that I'm visiting. Um, I also do a lot of reading of, of literature, um, both about that, uh, that country or that culture, um, and I, I try to find, you know, quote-unquote, native authors. So, for example, next month I'm going to Tunisia, um, and uh, I've made sure to pick up a, a couple of books of, like, for example, Tunisian poetry and folk tales uh, by Amina Said, uh, or to get um, a, a copy of Gustave Flaubert's Salambo, which is set in ancient Carthage, which is now present modern-day Tunisia. So, so a combination of native author and an outsider. And outsiders, yes. yes. Um, and so I feel like when I arrive in the country, I have already sort of multiple perspectives, and, and that, that helps me find, in my opinion, an extra resonance in what I'm seeing, hearing, eating, um, and talking about when I, when I chat with people. I think that is one of the best tips, because you're the, of, of all the travelers I know, you're the one that reads the most about a place before you go. And it's been interesting from your Facebook posts and things hmm. you know, to see how it affects you or how it did resonate with you. So I yeah, think more people should do that. There, there's a woman named Anne Fadiman, um, who is a writer, a columnist. Uh, anyway, she wrote a book called Ex Libris. And one of the chapters in Ex Libris is it's about uh, something that she calls You Are There Reading. Um, and this is something that I take very much to heart. Uh, I like reading uh, books about places in the places where those books are set. So whether it's reading King Kakuji, the Temple of the Gold Pavilion, at King Kakuji uh, in Kyoto, mm -hmm. uh, or reading uh, T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom in the middle of Wadi Rum in the Jordanian desert, because that's where um, he uh, helped marshal the Arab forces in, in World War I. So there's, there's something about reading such books in the places where the, the action of those books takes place that, that makes both the book and the place more interesting for me. So, yeah, I don't know if I could say that's an item or a specialty item, but definitely I always bring reading material. The only other thing I came up with, and this is going to sound super lame, uh, is dental floss. No, that's, that's important. So, <laughs> like, generally, I don't think I'm so OCD, but uh, I often find that a few days into a particular trip, uh, if I have not brought my dental floss, I start, I don't know, I, I start feeling very anxious about the state of my mouth and, and what's between my teeth and so on. And, uh, How did you have the cot? How did you <laughs> have the Exactly. Well, I did bring dental floss on that trip, because it was going to be a long trip. Was it, like, alternating? <laughs> Although I, I don't think I, I, I couldn't floss my teeth for several days after that. It was just too painful. 
thank you. I, I think that's that's more that's more than enough. You don't need to you know rack your brain for things that don't exist. Yeah. You're going to Tunisia next. Um, what's your next travel challenge? Yes, although I, I should say that Tunisia is probably not likely to be so challenging. The reason I'm going to Tunisia is because Tunisia is the current gateway to Libya. Um, and, uh, yeah, Mom, Dad, if you're listening to this <laughs> to, to this episode um, before mid-September, uh, yeah, you just might want to turn down the, the volume at this point and you know, wait, wait a couple minutes. Uh, I know your you mom can, has endured you quite a bit over the years, Daniel. Your mom has just... Turn to I don't know. Turn to drugs to calm herself <laughs> down from all the places. She, she's a trooper. Yeah, she's she's a trooper. I think she's kind of, you know, shrugged at this point and said, "Okay, he's going to do what he's going to do." Um, I, I have assured her that you know I'm not going to plonk myself down into the middle of, of Damascus uh, anytime soon. But uh, anyway, I, I will be going to Libya, uh, in Is September. Yes. Okay. Um, it's kind of a regret of mine that I didn't have a chance to go before. 2011 in the Arab Spring, uh, because that country is currently, uh, well, not to put too fine a point on it, it's a mess. How did you get the visa? How was the visa process for that? Uh, actually, I haven't yet gotten my visa. I'm expecting to get my official letter of invitation any day now, um, but that's been a, a weeks-long process, and it's it's still in process, so I may not end up going to, to, to Libya, um, but fingers crossed that all of that will, will come together this week. Um, I won't bore you with the bureaucratic details, but it involves talking to a lot of different people in Libya and then also here in Tokyo and coordinating a number of different forms and proofs of residency here and there and et cetera, et cetera. I would generally say, I, I always, for, for places like this, I like to go on tours, especially because I'm a woman. Mm. Um, but so these places, though, are very interesting because they're off the beaten path, so to speak, and you're getting all these, you know, I feel like these experiences that feel so legitimate. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, a lot of travelers, I'm sure you've encountered any number of people like this in, in your own travels. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about like authenticity. Um, and I, I think there's a, a certain amount of growing desperation among a, a certain crowd of travelers that all of the authentic, uh, unique, untouched places in the world are, are now gone. They've gone the way of the dodo and they no longer exist. Or if they do exist, you have to take a two and a half week hike somewhere into the I don't know, the inner Himalayas and find some hermit sitting on a mountaintop, and maybe he hasn't seen anybody in, in years. Um, so the world is always changing, and I, I think as I travel more, I've sort of given up on this idea of, of authenticity. I mean, pe- people and places are always in transition, um, but certainly some places are more in transition than others, and some. I tend to like to go to places where there are not a lot of other travelers, uh, which is, I mean, I realize I am a traveler, I am a tourist, and it's silly for me to, to badmouth or to poo-poo uh, the presence of other travelers. Um, but, but I do very much like going to places where if I do see other people, other you know, travelers there, um, it's because they've seriously committed themselves to, to going there uh, for whatever reason. Um, they're not doing it uh, casually. They're, they're not doing it sort of on a, on a whim. Um, they have some sort of deeper reason for being there. Um, and, and, and I respect and appreciate that. Um, and I also love it when I go someplace and there's nobody but me who's there. I see. To really like get into that state of whatever you're working on in your life or variety of reasons. But. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for someone who is kind of know trepidatious about doing this whole further abroad travel thing or even going out of the country for the first time right how do you turn that trepidatiousness into intrepidity um you know i i would say go at your own pace Uh, don't feel the pressure particularly in this age of social media where you call up instagram or facebook or snapchat or whatever it is that the kids are using these days and you see these very sort of carefully curated versions of people's astonishingly adventurous and beautiful lives. I mean, don't feel like on your first trip you have to conquer Everest or that you have to stay in some five-star Venetian, you know, canal-side hotel. I mean, start slow and, and be comfortable with that. Uh, I would say even thinking about getting out of your, your usual environment is a really important first step. Taking the 
take, taking a moment to realize that what is around you is is maybe not everything that there is you know to, to see in, in the world or in this great universe it's particularly in and this message is directed especially at Americans I think particularly in this increasingly polarized and sort of um, culture war entrenched environment that we have in the states right now it, it's it's especially important to step outside your comfort zone or at least just to, to be willing to extend your hand across that aisle or take a step outside of your usual limits and boundaries and try to see uh, the other side, try to see things from a different perspective. And that could mean jumping on a plane and, and uh, riding a camel in the Sahara, but it could also mean just getting in the car and going a couple of townships over and uh, sitting in a local cafe and chatting with you know, the, the bartender there or something. Um, get out of your comfort zone. I, I think you'll benefit tremendously from that. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for yeah, thank taking you. this time. And I, I just have a last question here. Is there any place that listeners could follow you or check out some of your travel photos if that's what you would uh, like sh- to do? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly active on Instagram, but uh, I, I'm fairly disciplined about every Friday I post one travel photo from a previous journey on my Instagram account. With no hashtags. With no hashtags, (laughs) yes. So I'm not keen to be swallowed into the Instagram uh, vortex, as it were. Uh, But if you're interested in seeing some photos of the places that I've been, um, I've posted some not half bad ones. Uh, You can find me at IchigoIchie916. IchigoIchie is a Japanese expression, one of these expressions that's kind of impossible to translate perfectly into English, but it basically means uh, this one moment once in a lifetime. It's kind of the Japanese equivalent of carpe diem. So seize the day, appreciate every moment as it comes, um, and look forward to uh, not just tomorrow, but you know, make sure that you, you treasure that experience and the present that you are in. So Ichigo Ichige 916. We will do our best to put a link to that <laughs> on, a, on a website as well. So. Great. I expect thousands of followers soon. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Becky. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that interview with Daniel listeners and that he gave you even more travel inspiration based on just how far and wide he's traveled. One day I'm going to catch you with that country count, Daniel, or maybe not, but you inspire me, and I hope that he inspired you this week, listeners. In his honor, and because he mentions Lord of the Rings, I thought it would be fun this week to leave you a travel quote. You've certainly heard this quote before. It's actually an eight-line poem from J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm going to just read you the first two lines. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wonder are lost. I think that is so cool and so fitting for this week. I hope this inspires you listeners, and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all. Standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money.